All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda... Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Five, four, four, five. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's new series, Landmark Cases. Tonight and for the next 11 weeks, we're going to be looking at 12 cases that have affected the country and affected the development of court, the court and society. Tonight, our case is Marbury versus Madison, one of the court's earliest cases. And it's also interesting because it all came about between two founding fathers, who developed an enmity after the election of 1800 and differing views of how the country should be governed. We have two guests at the table to help us understand this story and the importance of this case in our country's history. Let me introduce you to them. Akil Reed Amar is a Yale University Law School professor, and he's been doing that since 1985. He's the author of several books, including America's Constitution, a biography. And uh, also at the table, federal litigator, former Supreme Court clerk, and court observer Cliff Sloan. He's the co-author of a book on Marbury versus Madison, The Great Decision, Jefferson, Adams, Marshall, and the Battle for the Supreme Court. <clears throat> Gentlemen, excuse me, to uh, start, we're going to listen to the current Chief Justice talking about the importance of this case. And then after we hear his point of view, we'd like to hear from both of you on why this case is significant. Let's watch. John Marshall uh, established the, the court as the interpreter of the Constitution in his famous decision he wrote of Marbury versus Madison, um, he basically said, look, we're a court, we have to decide cases. If in deciding a case we have to determine what the Constitution means, well, that's our job under the Constitution. He regarded the Constitution as law. Uh, that's one way that our Constitution is different from a lot of others. In many countries that have constitutions, they're really just political documents. And if you have a dispute under the Constitution, it's going to be resolved however disputes are going to be resolved, maybe in an election if you're lucky, maybe by force of arms if you're not, maybe by the mob. However uh, political disputes are resolved, that's how they would resolve constitutional questions. John Marshall in, in Marbury versus Madison said this is different. Um, the Constitution is a political document. It sets up the political structures, but it's also a law. And if it's a law, we have the courts to tell what it means, and that's binding on the other branches. And that important insight uh, into how the Constitution works has uh, been, I think, the secret to its success. That's the current Chief Justice on the meaning of Marbury versus Madison. Cliff Sloan, you wrote the book on it. So what's your take? Why is this case significant? What impact has it had? Well, as Chief Justice Roberts said, because of Marbury versus Madison, in our system of government, the Supreme Court is the ultimate authority on questions of constitutional interpretation. That is a very important cornerstone of our constitutional system. And I think Justice 
Sandra Day O'Connor put it very well. She said that because of Marbury versus Madison, each of us has constitutional rights that no president and no Congress can ever take away. And that's really what Marbury stands for. Akhil Amar, your thoughts on why this case matters? Uh, so uh, many of your uh, audience have heard of this concept called judicial review. And in a nutshell, it means that courts, not just the U.S. Supreme Court, but all courts in our system, state courts, lower federal courts, have the ability to disregard even an act of Congress or state law if, in the judge's view, that act of Congress or um, a state law is inconsistent with the judge's understanding of the Constitution itself. Um, now, the interesting thing about judicial review is, although Marbury is a first case about judicial review, it actually, um, judicial review wasn't that vigorous um, before the Civil War. And so Marbury becomes, in some ways, more important because of stuff that happens later in our story. And we look back and read some things back in, into Marbury. At the time, perhaps it was a more narrow decision than um, we remember it as being. Well, you call it a story, and it is a story to tell. And like any good story, it has a cast of characters. So as we begin tonight, we want to introduce you to several names you'll be hearing throughout the 90 minutes and understand the role they played in the Marbury versus Madison case coming to the Supreme Court. Well, let's start with the principles. John Adams, 1800, where was he in his political career? He was the incumbent president. He had been, he was elected in 1796 after serving two terms as vice president under George Washington. In 1796, it was the first contested presidential election between him and Thomas Jefferson. Adams narrowly won, and under the system that we had at the time, the person who got the second most electoral college votes served as vice president. So Thomas Jefferson was his vice president, and in the course of Adams's presidency, he and uh, Jefferson had a, a very severe rivalry develop between them personally and also between political parties that they were heading. And it was really the first time we see the emergence of political parties in our country. And so in 1800, John Adams was an embattled incumbent president running for re-election. So Thomas Jefferson in 1800 decides he wants the top spot. He's, so you have the sitting president running against the sitting vice president. And, and just think actually about the instability of that. In, you know, in some ways, it didn't happen, but it's an assassination incentive. Um, you know, what, the person who's a heartbeat away is uh, vigorously opposed to the policies of, of, of the number one person. These are people who worked together, Adams and Jefferson, back in 1776. They're on the committee that drafts the Declaration of Independence. And um, as Cliff said, in, in 1796, they run against each other, the first contested election, but it's a relatively tame affair. Jefferson actually tells his supporters, you know, listen, my turn will come. Let's not badmouth Adams too, too much. But now politics have become much more intense, much more polarized. This would never happen again in American history, polarized politics, of course. But, but with this po uh, political polarization, you've got the sitting president against the sitting vice president, both leading large camps, big political parties, as, as Cliff said, that really don't um, really respect each other. And, and each one, at its at most extreme, each one of these parties thinks that the other one is borderline treasonous. So that's the election, of the rematch 
1796, 1800, sitting president against a sitting vice president, Adams against Jefferson. And what happened in the election? Well, therein also lies a tale because it's, it's a little convoluted. Uh, some of your, your audience might remember back in 2000 and Bush versus Gore. It, it's kind of that kind of roller coaster ride uh, complication. Um, in a nutshell, Jefferson wins the South. He's the Southerner. Adams wins the North. He's the Northerner. That, that happened 1796. The swing state where North meets South, today it's Ohio, um, back then... Um, it's New York, which was a slave state. And, and the second time around, Jefferson partners up with a man named Aaron Burr from New York. And New York swings from the, the northern camp, the Adams camp, um, to Jefferson, the southern camp. And so it seems as if Jefferson and, um, and his running mate, Burr, have, have prevailed. But there's a wrinkle, and I'll let Cliff tell you the wrinkle. <laughs> well, the wrinkle is that at the time... There, uh, it wasn't clear if somebody was voting for president or vice president. They just cast their votes. And as we said, the person who got the second most came in, uh, it became the vice president. And so what happened was that Jefferson and Burr got the same number of votes. A tie. It, it was a tie. And um, everybody sort of knew at the time of the election that Jefferson was the main candidate. But then uh, after it becomes clear that they're a tie... Uh, well, Aaron Burr isn't so eager to just <laughs> defer to Jefferson. And um, because there's not a majority in the Electoral College, it gets decided by the House of Representatives with each state having one vote. And what you had had to happen in that election is that, first of all, Jefferson and Burr had prevailed against the incumbent Adams the first time in our history that an incumbent president had been ousted by an election, nobody knew at this point who the successor was going to be. But the Congress also had been swept by Jefferson's party. And the House of Representatives that was going to decide who was going to be the president between Jefferson and Burr was the outgoing Federalist Congress, Adams's party. The lame ducks. The, the lame ducks. Who had just been repudiated, but it's the lame duck Adams allies who are going to be deciding which of these two Jeffersonians, you know, gets the top slot. Absolutely. And, and they are very bitter against Jefferson. It has just been a fierce campaign. I mean, as Akil was saying, we, we think politics is harsh and negative now. It has <laughs> nothing on the election in 1800. And so you have these very angry... Uh, uh, federalists who think Jefferson's going to take the country in a terrible direction. And they're the ones who are uh, tasked with deciding whether it's going to be Jefferson and Burr. And it leads to great chaos. The House of Representatives cannot decide because of the composition of those delegations. And it finally goes 37 ballots in just a couple weeks before the new president is supposed to be inaugurated, before Jefferson finally prevails. But up until that point, there is great uncertainty and chaos throughout the country, and there are all kinds of rumors about what might happen in Federalist plots, that they'll try to put a Federalist in office. So it was a great, it was a time of great uncertainty. And again, this is all in a context where there had never been an incumbent president uh, ousted in an election before. So trying the constitutional system that, that, that had been in place for just a short time. Now, our next important principle in this is John Marshall. Something unthinkable today, he held two roles, Secretary of State, and he was appointed Chief Justice and held both of those positions at the same time. So he's the outgoing, he's Adams's right hand as Secretary of State, 
And with the benefit of hindsight, when we look back, we can see basically that secretaries of state often become presidents. So Thomas, Je- uh, Thomas Jefferson was a secretary of state. He's going to eventually hand over the presidency to James Madison, who was a secretary of state, and James Monroe, the next guy, was a secretary of state, and John Quincy Adams, John Adams' son, was a secretary of state, and we're not done yet. Now, this might be good news for Hillary Clinton today, but remember John Kerry it, um, um, uh, didn't quite um, uh, uh, prevail. But, but So John Adams is... Uh, John Marshall, excuse me, is John Adams's ally. He's his right hand, his Secretary of State, but he's also the new incoming Chief Justice. Um, and for a month, he basically holds both positions. And there's one other wrinkle, since Cliff mentioned there are all these conspiracy theories. So what happens if the deadlock goes on and on and on, and come Inauguration Day, they're still deadlocked? Well, here's one possibility. Maybe, under those circumstances, maybe, 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 there's actually this anonymous newspaper essay that comes out that, that maybe the person who actually should, should occupy the, the, the White House in that circumstance is none other than the Secretary of State. John Marshall. So John Marshall is even mentioned as like one of the possible people trying to sort of nose himself into this this um, uh, really complicated uh, uh, um, situation. But for um, right as as Adams's administration is ending, yes, John Marshall is both the Secretary of State and the new incoming Chief Justice. And, and, and fact- one point that is just very important to emphasize on that is that. Um, Adams nominates Marshall, and he gets confirmed by the Senate in late January uh, 1801, becomes Chief Justice in February 1801. That is in the midst of this presidential chaos, and John Marshall himself is a lame duck appointment by the outgoing President John Adams, confirmed by the outgoing Federalist Senate. So the new president coming in, he has a majority in Congress, uh, but he learns that John Adams finds a way to continue his point of view within the federal structure by the judiciary. So that gives rise to our whole case. Tell us what happened. What did John Adams do? Well, these are the, are the midnight appointments. And John Adams, who was um, uh, somewhat bitter and nursing grievances about his defeat in the election, is determined to make as many appointments as he possibly can before he leaves office. And this is throughout the federal government, whether you're talking about United States attorneys or postmasters. But with the judiciary in particular, this uh, outgoing lame duck Congress passes a new Judiciary Act, which creates a new level in the federal courts and 16 new judgeships. And so, um, and they do this very late in their time uh, as as the outgoing Congress. And so John Adams is feverishly filling those uh, posts, nominating people to them, sending it up to the Hill. And at the same time, that Congress uh, creates lots of new posts in the District of Columbia, which had just become the capital in June of 1800. So he's got a whole raft of appointments in the District of Columbia. And he is literally staying up late until his last day in office, getting those appointments uh, up to the Senate, getting them confirmed, and his right-hand man, as Akil was saying, on these appointments is John Marshall, now Chief Justice, Secretary of State. He is the person who's advising Adams on the appointments, and he's the one who's controlling the paper flow for them. 
And then uh, as the midnight oil burned, <clears throat> the one thing that happened is not, not all of these commissions got delivered. And that's the crux of the story. What happened? So um, and just <laughs> one uh, uh, wrinkle, just we can we can talk about it two ways in partisan terms. The Federalists, the Adams folks, they've lost the presidency. They've lost the House. They're, they've basically lost the Senate, although it's a little bit more complicated. So what do they try to do? They try to retreat to the judiciary. That's going to be their stronghold um, uh, to resist the incursions that they expect the, the, the Jeffersonians um, um, will um, launch. So, so that's the partisan lineup. The other way of thinking about it is just the three branches of government. Again, you've got Jefferson basically coming in. He'll control the presidency and pretty much the House and actually also the Senate. But now the judiciary is going to be all these ghosts of, of uh, uh, enemies past who, who have, who have um, uh, now retreated into the judiciary. So John Marshall is responsible for getting all these new commissions out to their recipients. And it turns out that not all of them get properly delivered. They are signed um, uh, uh, by the almost midnight oil um, as 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 Jefferson as Adams is about to become, you know, Cinderella. Um, is you know the 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 coach is about to become a pumpkin, and the horses are about to become mice. So so right before the stroke of midnight, he signs them all. His Secretary of State. An acting Supreme Court Justice, uh, a Chief Justice, also John Marshall seals them, so they've been signed, sealed. But you know, remember the proverb: signed, sealed, and delivered. But they're not all delivered, and it gets even better. The person who fails to deliver some of these commissions is none other than John Marshall's brother, James Marshall, who himself has been one of the new appointees under this new Midnight Judges regime. Well, <clears throat> suffice it to say that Thomas Jefferson was not happy about this. Uh, flooding of the judiciary by his uh, a political opponent. And this is something that stayed with him for the rest of his life. What we're going to show you next is a letter that he wrote to Abigail Adams explaining his deep frustration with John Adams' midnight appointments. Welcome to the Massachusetts Historical Society. America's oldest historical society, and since the turn of the 20th century, home to a remarkable collection. About a quarter of a million manuscript pages, 300 years of one American family's experience. John and Abigail Adams and their descendants have their papers here in a series of archival boxes containing their correspondence, their diaries, their memoirs. Their stories of what it was like to be New England farmers, American diplomats, citizens concerned about the future of the American government and its justice system. Inside these archival boxes, you can read nearly 1,200 letters exchanged between John and Abigail Adams alone, telling us the story of how this nation transformed from revolution to republic. One of the most interesting correspondents in the Adams family was with Thomas Jefferson. And today we're going to take a look at one of my favorite letters written from Thomas Jefferson to Abigail Adams in 1804 as the two tried to patch things up in the wake of the midnight appointments. A family tragedy brought together Thomas Jefferson and Abigail Adams in June 1804. Abigail wrote to express her condolences on the death of Jefferson's daughter, Polly. Jefferson took the opportunity when he replied to remind Abigail that he and John Adams had a long friendship. In fact, he wrote, we had never stood in one another's way. 
He also, for the first time, spoke explicitly about the midnight appointments that had divided the pair. I can say with truth that one act of Mr. Adams' life, and one only, ever gave me a moment's personal displeasure. I did consider his last appointments to office as personally unkind. They were from among my most ardent political enemies, from whom no faithful cooperation could ever be expected, and laid me under the embarrassment of acting through men whose views were to defeat mine. Of the many Thomas Jefferson letters we hold in the Adams family papers, this one reads a little differently. Often Thomas Jefferson comes across as a cool, reserved, level-headed Virginian. Here, he's somewhat different. He's speaking to Abigail as an intellectual equal, and he's very concerned about how politics may have ruptured his friendships. And Cliff Sloan, this enmity or this frustration, I should call it that, seethed in Jefferson, as you tell in the book, for years uh, about this, these appointments and this case. Oh, he, he took, well, both the appointments and the case um, for, for, for different reasons. I mean, uh, they, they, they came together, but first of all, in terms of with Adams, as was indicated in that letter, Jefferson took it very personally. I mean, he had won the election. He was taking over the government and the judges. And, but even in the executive branch, Adams had done everything he could to pack it with uh, his Federalist allies. And, and Jefferson, in a whole series of letters to his political allies, I mean, this is what he's saying to Abigail Adams. You can imagine what he's saying to his political allies um, and to people like Madison and Monroe and to others. He is very, very bitter that he's inheriting a government that is packed with these people that uh, Adam has put there. And actually, throughout his first several months in office, 1801, he's really trying to figure out what to do. And he's sort of selectively, if he can figure out a way to block somebody or to retract their appointment, he does it. But he doesn't want to launch a full-scale assault. And one thing, just as an example of how personally he took this, um, Akhil was mentioning that James Marshall couldn't deliver all of the commissions. John, John's brother. John's brother, James Marshall, could not deliver all of the commissions. It, the, the pile was too big, and he left some on a table in the State Department. And the ones that he left on the table included those of William Marbury and some others who were supposed to be Justice of the Peace in the District of Columbia. And a day or two after his inauguration, Thomas Jefferson himself goes over to the State Department and sees this stack of papers on a table and starts looking at it. And remember, he's been Secretary of State earlier under George Washington, so he knows how the office works. Absolutely. He has intimate familiarity with it. And he, he sees this stack of papers, realizes what they are, commissions that have not been delivered, and he says, do not deliver these, because he is determined if there's any way that he can stop some of these midnight appointments and some of this packing of the government, he's going to do so. So he personally is the one who says, do not deliver these. He took it very, very personally. Which is another way of saying, although the case, which we haven't yet quite gotten to, is Marbury versus Madison, in effect, it's Marbury versus Jefferson. Madison is just a placeholder. Madison is the new Secretary of State. Um, uh, Je Je um, um, uh, Jefferson's Secretary of State. Um, but, but Madison is just doing what Jefferson is telling him. So this is really a lawsuit, in effect, against the sitting President of the United States, like 
later on the Nixon tapes case in your, your series. And Marbury is a proxy for Adams, so it's really Adams versus Jefferson <laughs> in the Supreme Court. Or Marshall. <laughs> That's right. So uh, you, we should tell you that the story ends uh, amicably between Jefferson and Adams. If you don't know this part of it, the two men continued to correspond from their respective parts of the country throughout their, their uh, rest of their years. And they ended their lives on the same day. This is always a wonderful mm-hmm. footnote to their, their life stories. They both died on the 4th of July on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And, in fact, they had come together intellectually at the very end and forgiven the old enmity. So it's, we've got to put that little coda there. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Now, you write in your book, Cliff Sloan, that... Je- Despite the fact that Thomas Jefferson went over the State Department, President Jefferson never wanted to mire his presidency or the Congress in a debate about the judiciary. (laughs) However, that all changed when William Marbury filed suit. Why? Well, in December 1801, William Marbury and, um, and three other individuals who sort of drop out of the case in the popular history, but who were supposed to be justices of the peace and their commissions were not delivered... They file suit uh, against Madison in his role as Secretary of State in December 1801. Now, December 1801 is a very key period because it's actually the first time that this new uh, Congress, headed by the Democratic-Republicans, as Jefferson's party was known, is sitting. And so there's this great anticipation. This is really the first time the Jefferson administration in its full breath, is getting together for this Congress in December 1801. And Marbury and these three others file suit in the Supreme Court. And they file suit asking that a mandamus, which is a technical legal term, it's basically an order from the court, that a mandamus issue to James Madison ordering him to uh, deliver the commissions to them and allowing them to take their jobs. And it's very clear um, all four of them are sort of prominent, active Federalists, and it's very clear there's a political cast to this. And they are taking on Jefferson and the Jefferson administration by filing suit. And the Supreme Court, which at that point was very far from a co-equal branch of government, it had no respect, no prestige, and the Supreme Court sits and hears the arguments, and their lawyer is Charles Lee, who had been the attorney general in the Adams administration. And then the Supreme Court issues an order to show cause. And what that means is they're ordering Madison and Jefferson to justify their actions. And they say that they are going to hear the case when they sit again in June 1802. And this shocks the Jefferson administration because now the Supreme Court is really sticking to them. The Supreme Court is going to make them justify why they didn't deliver the commissions, and it's going, to, it's going to hear this lawsuit. And so Jefferson and his allies react with a fury to that order to show cause. One of the things that will be important about this series is that it's interactive, and we invite your participation three ways. You can call us, and we'll go to calls in a few minutes from now. And here are the phone numbers. The Eastern and Central Time Zone viewers can call us at 202-748-8900. If you live in the Mountain or Pacific Time Zones, 202-748-8901. And you can tweet us questions. We'll be working those in throughout the program. 
at C-SPAN and use the uh, hashtag landmark cases. We'll put that on the screen throughout the hour. And finally, our Facebook page has an area where people are already discussing this case and we'll work in some of those comments as well. Now, one other personal part of this, we should say, so the Supreme Court agrees to hear it with Adams appointee John Marshall as the chief justice in the case. But he and Jefferson also have a personal a family relationship and are political enemies. So <clears throat> they, they are second cousins and they don't much like each other. Um, John Marshall is a nationalist. He was there at Valley Forge with General Washington in the Revolutionary War. And that army experience really predisposed him to be very much a believer in the central government. Thomas Jefferson is more of a states' rights guy. And remember, Adams, excuse me, Marshall himself maybe was putting himself forward as a possible presidential alternative if there was a deadlock between Jefferson and Burr. He, Marshall is the most popular Federalist. John Adams is no longer very popular. He's been repudiated. But, but John Marshall is actually the leader, in effect, of the Federalist Party. So there's all that politics. And there's some personality there. As I said, second cousins from Virginia. They're both connected to the Randolph clan. Um, Marshall's mother-in-law was the former fiancé or um, um, had been courted, at least, by, by Jefferson. And there was some bad blood there. So there's that whole... Um, overlay on top of uh, that. But then remember one final thing. It's Marshall himself who, as Secretary of State, in effect, fails to effectuate the delivery of these things. Now he's, as Chief Justice, hearing a lawsuit about that factual transaction as to which he's, in effect, a witness. Um, and, there's, and the Supreme Court is sitting as a trial court in what's called original jurisdiction. So there really is a question, truthfully, by at least by today's standards, of whether John Marshall should be hearing this case at all or whether he shouldn't just recuse himself. Um, not because he's a federalist, because everyone's a federalist or a Republican. You're, you're going to be on one side or the other. Not because he's friends with Adams, because everyone's friends with everyone else. But he is a witness to the very transaction involved, and yet he has shown no indication whatsoever that it, he needs to bow out of this. He's threatening, at least in the early stages, to issue this order to his successor, Madison, and his rival, Jefferson. John Marshall's home was Richmond, Virginia. We traveled there with our cameras. And next, you're going to see a little bit of his home and how they interpret it for today's visitors. This house really gives us an insight into the personality of John Marshall. Now, if you could imagine, this room, which we call the large dining room, was the first room that visitors to the house would have entered into. It's quite a grand room. It would have been used for many different purposes, one of which was to house John Marshall's early law practice. Eventually, right outside this window, you would have been able to see his two-story brick law office. But until that time, he used this room to entertain his clients. The desk that we see right over here is actually John Marshall's desk. It would have been in that two-story brick law office. It would have been used by Marshall to write when he was Supreme Court Chief Justice. That was something that he was very well known for, was being a very, very long-winded uh, writer. So that would have taken place sitting right here. John Marshall would have been in residence uh, during his time as Supreme Court Chief Justice for probably about a third of the year. 
Um, this spot where I'm currently standing would have been basically the location that John Marshall would have been at the head of the table in an event that was notoriously known as the Lawyer's Dinners. Um, this event would have been held once a month whenever John Marshall was in his Richmond home. And if you can imagine this being the head of a massive table that would have stretched all the way across this room, it would have been filled with the most prominent men in Richmond at that time. And it was in this room that men like Patrick Henry, Madison, Monroe, uh, John Jay would have been discussing some of the most relevant philosophical, political topics, things that were being created in our early republic. Uh, so it's in this room over lots of food and drink that many of the decisions onto what our country would become were laid out. And certainly some of those discussions had to do with uh, the Supreme Court and its role in society and the two parties and their big split on the direction of the country. So in this section, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Supreme Court as John Marshall found it in, uh, in 1800. And in fact, one of our viewers on Facebook asked, what can we glean from the Federalist Papers about the framers' intentions for the scope of powers afforded the Supreme Court? Uh, well, uh, the Federalist Papers are a series of newspaper op-eds originally published uh, um, under a pseudonym, Publius, um, it's actually three people we now know, John Jay, um, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and uh, they later pulled all these newspaper op-eds into um, a book, um, and these newspaper op-eds tried to persuade Americans during the year in which the Constitution as a proposal was pending before the country, these newspaper op-eds tried to basically persuade people to vote for the Constitution. Uh, and uh, later on, John Marshall, among others, would say, this is a very good statement of what the, frame, uh, what the supporters of the Constitution thought it was going to be all about. And it's a good resource because the people had access to it. It's not some secret document. Ordinary people had access to this when they were being asked whether to vote yes or no on the document. The Federalist 78, there are about 85 essays in all, was written by Alexander Hamilton, we now know, and it's actually a defense of what we talked about earlier, judicial review. It doesn't try to prove that judicial review is in the Constitution. Actually, lots of people thought it was in it, and remember, judicial review is the ability not just of the Supreme Court, but of any court, even a state court, lower federal court, to disregard a law, a state law, or even an act of Congress, if in the judge's view that law is inconsistent with the Constitution. And in Federalist 78, um, Hamilton says, yes, it's in the Constitution, and that's a reason to vote for it, because that's a good thing. Critics had said during the ratification process, judicial review is in the Constitution, and it's a bad thing, because it's going to mean judges are too powerful. And uh, Hamilton and others said, it's in the Constitution, you're right, but it's a good thing because it means that judges will enforce the Constitution above everything else. A, a debate that echoes today, and we'll <laughs> talk about that later on in the program. Yeah, judicial activism or not. In 1800, when John Marshall joined the court, there were six justices. We're going to give the names because some of them are familiar names to American history. John Marshall, of course, Samuel Chase, William Patterson of New Jersey, is that correct? Yes. Uh, Bushrod Washington, was he related to George? He was nephew. Uh, 
William Cushing and Alfred Moore. Now, was the number set anywhere at six? How did that number get Yes, it was, it was set in the Judiciary Act of 1789. So, so did they not anticipate that there might be tie votes? <laughs> they, the Supreme Court early on was not nearly so important as it's become. And so just that little number, you know, an even number, how odd, you know, from, from our point of view. And that's one of many little signals that although they anticipated judicial review, I don't think they thought it would be quite the 800-pound gorilla that it has since become. The Supreme Court had no home at the time. Where did it meet? Well, that's a very interesting story, which perfectly symbolizes the very sort of weak and meager status of the Supreme Court in our system of government. Because in Washington at that time, as it becomes the capital in 1800, you have the president's house, which became the White House, under construction. You have the Capitol under construction. And nobody had even thought about where the Capitol, uh, where the Supreme Court was going to meet. It was that insignificant. And um, some of the people who were planning the city kept sort of raising this and they couldn't get the attention of anybody, including the Secretary of State, John Marshall. Well, once he becomes Chief Justice, he gets more, much more interested <laughs> in that question. And they end up giving the Supreme Court this um, very small, dank committee room in the Capitol, which they shared with the local D.C. courts. Um, uh, so that, that was the home of the, that the Supreme Court is given very late in the game. They're basically borrowing space uh, almost, in the Capitol. Almost an afterthought. Remember, Article 3, the judicial article, is third out of three. The Constitution first talks about the Congress in Article 1, then the presidency in Article 2. Article 3 is third out of three. It's the shortest article. As Cliff said, it's actually a mere statute that prescribes the number of justices. That's not set out in the Constitution itself. It's, um, it was originally six. It went down to five, and Cliff might want to tell us a little bit about that. It's over time gone up as much as ten. Um, uh, uh, FDR um, very famously um, uh, tried to tinker with the, the number in order to get a better set of outcomes from, from the justices. So all of these, it seems to me, are little signals that in the original Constitution vision, constitutional vision, the court perhaps, and, and the judiciary more generally, not just the Supreme Court, but the whole judiciary, not quite as powerful as, as they have since become. I want to get one more fact about this on the table uh, before we get some calls in, and that is that William Marbury filed his case in 1801. Yes, his December lawsuit. 1801. Yeah, it took the court until 1803 to hear the case, but that's because Congress intervened. What did they do? Yes, a remarkable part of this story. Congress basically shut down the Supreme Court. Um, we it talked about the fact that there was this reaction by the Jeffersonians to the order to show cause in December 1801 and the court setting it for uh, resolution in June 1802. And the, the Jeffersonians then swing into action in Congress, and they repeal the Judiciary Act. They get rid of these midnight uh, appointments uh, that had been made. And one of the other things that they do is they change the Supreme Court schedule and basically say it's not going to meet at all during 1802. It won't meet until February 1803. And they clearly are trying to get some distance before the court hears the Marbury case and also before the Supreme Court hears what's expected to be a constitutional challenge to this repeal of the Judiciary Act and this getting rid of the midnight appointments. But it's an amazing thing. The only time in our history the Congress actually shut down the Supreme Court for an entire year. Did they send the justices back writing the circuit to hear cases too? So there are a couple of things that they're doing. It's a shot across the bow. 
It's trying to give them a little time to think about it, maybe in the same way that you call a timeout before the other side tries a field goal just to, to psych out the, 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 the kicker. But also, yes, they can't sit, they can't meet as a Supreme Court. And before they're going to meet again, the new law says you got to go back on the road, ride circuit as individual justices. And, um, and when you do all of that under the, this new repeal law, you will, in effect, have been committing, committed yourself to the legitimacy of this new repeal law. And you're going to kind of have to do that before you've really had a chance to consult um, with all your colleagues on the Supreme Court. So remember um, that the Supreme Court at the time, the justices really have two functions. They, they serve as the highest um, uh, uh, court within the system, but they also um, as a collectivity, but they're also riding circuit as individual uh, judges in different parts of the country. They're trying cases um, um, uh, up, up and down the continent. And, and uh, let me just say, the justices hated riding circuit. The roads were primitive. Yeah. The conditions were awful. They absolutely hated it. They had yeah. to go to inns and share you're, beds with you're, other travelers. You're away from your yeah. family. No prestige in that job. Before, <laughs> but on, the, on prestige, they were kind of in the basement of the, or, you know, they're in a not great room in, in the Capitol building. And before John Marshall comes along, the justices don't speak with one voice. There's not an opinion of the court. Um, um, individual judges, justices sort of say what they think, but there's actually not um, a, a formal recording process in which all these um, statements are, are automatically published in, in United States um, uh, r- reports. Um, so, it, um, and um, you, uh, John Jay was mentioned earlier on. Marshall's predecessors, one of them, the first chief justice, actually left the job because he'd rather be governor of, of New York. So, so it, it, it wasn't quite... Um, the, um, and there were other justices who were running for governorships and other things while they were justices. So it wasn't the plum job in Washington, D.C. And part of the reason why is because you had to spend a lot of the time on the road. Okay, and, and, i got to jump in because we have callers. Okay, okay. Let me do okay. that. Robin is watching us in Trenton, and you're first among our callers tonight. Hi, Robin. Hi. I'm hoping that you can clarify something one way or the other. Can you tell me whether or not this case was the one that decided the supremacy of the court in terms of the court's ability to say what the law is? I've read on both sides, so thank you. Thank you very much. Akhil Amar? We may have a little bit of a disagreement, Cliff and I, on that. I think the classic view is, yes, that case did establish that. Um, I tend to think that before Marbury, um, it was pretty clear that there was supposed to be judicial review in the system. You see it even in the Federalist 78, and state courts had done this under state constitutions, and justices writing circuit had had um, ruled on constitutionality, and um, and even the Supreme Court had um, ruled on constitutionality but upheld uh, congressional law. So, so before Marbury, there was a lot of um, a, a, a judicial review of a certain sort had been um, established. After Marbury, judicial review is a little bit better established, but it's, again, not the 800-pound gorilla. Um, the court um, isn't going to strike down an act of Congress again until 1850s, a case called Dred Scott. So, um, uh, And the court in Marbury doesn't say, you won't find the sentence, the Supreme Court is the ultimate interpreter of the Constitution. That sentence doesn't appear in U.S. reports until um, after um, World War II. Um, and the, 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 we haven't got to Marbury yet, but the technical issue at stake in Marbury 
isn't some, um, it's not about abortion or school prayer or Obamacare or the death penalty. It's about a very, very technical issue about the judiciary itself, original versus appellate jurisdiction. Do so you, that's the narrow reading of Marbury. Do you disagree? I do disagree. And I, I think the answer to your question is yes, it is the case that establishes that. And two points on that. First, there is the very simple uh, fact that cannot be contested that it is the first time that the Supreme Court strikes down an act of Congress as being unconstitutional and establishes that principle. And indeed, it was the first time in the history of the world where a court had struck down uh, a statute of a coordinate uh, branch in, in a national government. But it, it definitely is the first time in our history when that happens. The opinion says it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department, the courts, to say what the law is. But the other point is that, that I think is very important is because it is in the Federalist in uh, 78 and people had talked about it. But one point that I think um, people tend to forget is that the federal judiciary had fallen into uh, sort of ill repute among the Jeffersonians. They were very hostile to the federal judiciary. They viewed it as the tool of the Federalists. And as a result, you see Jefferson's allies, both before the Marbury decision, while the case is pending, and some of them even afterwards, who are saying there is nothing in the Constitution that suggests that the Supreme Court has the power to declare a statute uh, unconstitutional. And the Marbury opinion... Uh, very strongly and forever refutes that. We're already at our halfway point, so I need to tell you that for time. David, Tulsa, Oklahoma, your question for us, please. Yes, I would. Uh, I agree with Mr. Sloan on his uh, opinion about the significance of the, of the decision. I also think that the, the United States of America is very fortunate that this case came along early in its history because previously... With the Bank of the United States, it had to, there was a constitutional crisis there as to who was to, to decide if there was to be a Bank of the United States. There was also the Alien and Sedition Acts under uh, President John Adams uh, that created such a uh, turmoil. And I think that all ended with Marbury versus Madison, and if you've ever been to the Supreme Court, when you walk in, there's this, that gigantic sculpture of John Marshall. It doesn't leave any doubt as to who is the, you know, the most power, most significant member ever of the Supreme Court. In the and, view of uh, the court, uh, who, who built it, the building. It yeah. is in the court, and actually, David, um, I think both of the things that you mentioned cut against your point um, in a certain way. So... Um, the, so we, people have been taught, oh, the Supreme Court is the ultimate interpreter of the Constitution. Um, well, not quite, and I'm not endorsing Kim Davis here. But let's just let's talk about the Alien Sedition Act. The Alien Sedition Act was a law John Adams signed that made it a crime to criticize the president made it a crime to criticize the Congress, which is dominated by the president's party, did not make it a crime to criticize the vice president, who is the leader of the other party, made it a crime to crit for challengers to criticize incumbents, not incumbents to criticize challengers. All these rules expired after the next election. It, it was disgusting, it, a total violation of the First Amendment. And yet, and yet, and yet, 
Federalist judges, Supreme Court justices writing circuit upheld that law against constitutional challenges again and again and again, including um, Samuel Chase, who's on the U.S. Supreme Court. And so who in the end puts in, drives a stake through the heart of the Sedition Act? The president, Thomas Jefferson, when he sweeps into office, and notwithstanding these judicial orders upholding the Sedition Act, he pardons everyone, and so he was actually the last word and uh, more in favor of liberty and the First Amendment. Now, you mentioned the bank. Can you do that one briefly? The Bank of the United States, the big controversial issue, does not reach the United States Supreme Court until in, in the 1780s. doesn't reach the Supreme Court until 1819. John Marshall will uphold it in McCulloch versus Maryland. And once again, the last word was had by a president, Andrew Jackson, who actually vetoes it. And he says, you said it was constitutional. I don't think so. So both of your examples actually are illustrations that presidents as well as justices play important roles in the constitutional conversation and sometimes are even the last word. Richard is in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Hi, Richard. Hello. How are you? Great, sir. Your question for us. Well, um, I'm a 35-plus-year trial attorney, and I particularly enjoyed this program for the way it puts a, a human context and also establishes the proxies, uh, um, Jefferson and Marshall, and establishes the nascent authority of the court, which is finally becomes clear in the Dred Scott case some 50 years later. So I just wanted to say thank you for such an important program. Well, thank you for the call. In fact, Dred Scott will be our next featured of the 12 cases we've, pictured, we've, we've chosen. By the way, this is a good point to tell you about our partners at the National Constitution Center. Uh, we started this project almost a year ago with their help. We went to them and said we'd like to do this, but we, uh, it's not our area of expertise. They have been very helpful along the way in helping us go through all the possibilities of case, blind research as we made the decision about the cases, and also with educational materials about uh, the cases themselves. So we've been enjoying the partnership in many more weeks to go as we help you and us learn more about the history of the Supreme Court. Well, one of the ways that John Marshall uh, sought to uh, establish the Supreme Court was even through symbolism. We're going to return to his house and uh, look at one change he made that was very different from the English system of the courts. Let's watch. These are John Marshall's Supreme Court robes. Uh, this is the only surviving example of his, uh, his Chief Justice robes. Uh, so they're right around 200 years old. Um, it's made out of black silk, and you can see here's the lapels, and here are the, the sleeves here. And after, after a couple hundred years, um, there starts to be some deterioration. These had been on display at John Marshall's house from 1929 until the 90s when we realized the level of deterioration and needed to, to stabilize them. He would have worn this early in his tenure as Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice, it's pretty much during this time period where he makes it the sanctioned uniform, so to speak, for the Supreme Court chief or Supreme Court justices to wear black robes rather than the red uh, robes that the English court would wear. 
So prior to John Marshall's appointment as Supreme Court Chief Justice, it was pretty much up to each individual justice to what they wanted to wear. Many of the Supreme Court justices were wearing um, pretty much modified English court robes, which would have been red. Uh, many of them were also wearing the English court wigs. And it was under uh, Marshall as Supreme Court Chief Justice that he made it mandatory that the judges would all be wearing these black robes. Um, this was really... Um, mainly to say that, that we're responsible for interpreting the Constitution. This is not a show of power. This is, um, we are of the people, we are not above the people, which is something that uh, he was extraordinarily passionate about. Demonstrates one of the many ways that John Marshall was thinking about how this court would become established in society. So, Cliffson, I want to walk through the essentials of the case because we have to get to the case. <laughs> when was it heard? Um, so uh, initially there was this proceeding in December 1801, and then it is heard again in February 1803, the next stage of the case. And it was heard in that courtroom you described in the Capitol building. Yes, exactly. The, deck, the, the... the lower level court. In the, and, <laughs> yes. And uh, it was conducted the way that we hear cases today as oral argument or something else? No, it was very different because it was an original action. Um, Marbury had filed suit in the Supreme Court under a part of the Judiciary Act that he said, I can file an original action asking the Supreme Court for mandamus. And so basically the Supreme Court had to have a trial to establish the facts. So they had to have witnesses. And so uh, Marbury's lawyer, Charles Lee, the former attorney general, puts on uh, witnesses. Now, he has a bit of a problem because the witnesses work for the government and they're suing the government. There are these two clerks at the State Department. Well, they work for James Madison, but he puts them on as witnesses. They're very uh, reluctant to testify. They object. They think um, they, they shouldn't have to testify about the inner workings of the executive branch. And John Marshall makes a series of very careful rulings. They can testify about the facts of where they're a commission, but they can't get into internal deliberations. Um, but there is basically an original trial going on in, in the Supreme Court. But there's one very unusual fact about this trial, which is that the defendant, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, they refuse to participate in it at all. They're showing total disdain for it. The attorney general, Jefferson's attorney general, Levi Lincoln, um, and he had done this in December 1801 also, he's in the courtroom, but when he's called upon by John Marshall, he refuses to participate as a lawyer in the trial uh, at all or to make any arguments. They're not going to dignify it by doing that. But as the trial proceeds in February 1803, they actually call him as a, as a witness to testify about whether he knows what happened to these commissions. And um, he very strenuously objects on various grounds uh, to testifying. And again, John Marshall makes a series of, uh, of very careful rulings, but very different from what you would see in the Supreme Court courtroom today. So how aware was the capital city and the rest of the country that this important case was going on? Uh, well, um, uh, it's in public. Um, we have a tradition of public trials, and, and people show up. The most important witnesses in the case, since it is a trial, are named Marshall. John Marshall is really a witness, and that's why, you know, from a certain point of view, don't do this at home, kids, you know. <laughs> he should not have heard the case, because he actually writes as if the facts just are clear. 
There's one person who actually knows from first-hand knowledge that the great seal of the United States was affixed to this commission, and that's the hand that did it, and that's John Marshall's hand as um, Secretary of State. Um, uh, but, and, and James Marshall, his brother, actually submits an affidavit. When you read it carefully, it actually says, I think Marbury's was one of the commissions I was supposed to deliver. I'm not exactly sure. So, um, uh, um, so um, it's interesting. <laughs> so uh, did all six of the justices participate? Uh, no, actually, uh, two of the justices were, were ill and could not be there. So there were only four of the six, and it took four to have a quorum. And that then led to some issues. How many days did the trial take place? Uh, it took place over two days in February 1803. And then how long did it take for the court to deliver its opinion? Well, it was um, 13 days later, and uh, that seems by today's standards to be a very uh, short period of time. At the time, the public was wondering what was taking the court so long, because the Supreme Court tended to issue its rulings very quickly in uh, in, in short opinions. One thing Akhil alluded to earlier, and it relates to the robes, one of the practices that John Marshall began was this practice of opinions for the court, as opposed to each of the justices just giving their own quick opinions. So even though it was a relatively short period, a couple weeks, there was speculation in the press about what is taking so long. So he's writing opinions, and they're all getting together, and they're all wearing the same robes. He's trying to create, summon from the, the vapors, this institution that we call the court instead of, you know, just a bunch of cats that are, that, that are being herded. So written opinions, which the Constitution doesn't require, but has been our tradition since um, the Marshall era, they all wear the same robes and they all try, if possible, to at least get at least a majority um, for um, one statement of reasons, the opinion of a court. And, and remarkably, perhaps... Um, he has them all staying in the same boarding house. and um, Like the dinner parties yeah. that we talked about, <laughs> yes, where exactly. he, and the wine flows <laughs> and the conversation flows, and he is a very charming uh, he's host. very gregarious. And I do have to tell one story about having all of the justices together in one boarding house, because he instituted a rule that they could only have their evening Madeira, the wine of the era, if it was raining out. And so each night he would have a justice go to the window and report, and frequently a justice would say, well, it looks very clear out there. And he would say, our jurisdiction is so vast, it must be raining somewhere. Break out the Madeira. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a call from Miguel in Corpus Christi, Texas. Hi, Miguel. Are you there? All right, let me move on to Lydia up next in uh, Irving, Texas. You're on the air. Hi. I am just curious about something, and that is that doesn't the uh, are you there? Yes, we're listening. Oh, okay. Doesn't the Constitution take precedent or reign supreme over the Federalist Papers, which are just basically articles written and published? I don't understand that. Thank you. Sure, um, but the Federalist Papers might help us understand what the words of the Constitution mean and were understood as meaning to the generation that ratified it. But of course, yes, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. The Federalist Papers are just one genuinely useful aid or guide to understanding what it really meant originally. Janet is in Rocky Face, Georgia. Your question, Janet. Uh, yes, uh, my question will be for Mr. Amar. Um, we're having a lot of, um, how will we relate to the Sharia law now? Um, a lot of the, um, there's two 
religions here like uh, that are prominent in the United States that they want to use uh, their own law at the uh, courts like the Sharia law and then the Jewish. Um, Janet, how, how does this connect into Marbury versus Madison? Yeah, um, I don't think that there is a connection. Okay, but I we're, we're feel, going to uh, we're going to stop. Thank you so much because we don't have time to bring it into today's. Let me just say one thing. Um, here's what's amazing: John Marshall swears in Thomas Jefferson. He's because he men don't like each other very much. Cliff's book has a very engaging story about how Marshall turns his back on Jefferson. But here's the amazing thing about the oath. It doesn't require any profession of religion. Um, You're allowed to say, so help me God, if you like, but you don't have to. Um, Two of the folks up there on Mount Rushmore, including Jefferson and Lincoln, were not conventional churchgoers. Ours is a system Mr. Jefferson would want us all to understand in which there is no religious test for public office. When uh, the Chief Justice delivers the opinion, the case is boiled down to three central questions. The first was, did Marbury have a right to his commission? The court said what? Yes, he did have a right to his commission. Question two, if he had a right and the right was violated, did the law provide a remedy for him? Yes, he did. And on both of these questions, uh, Marshall is very clear that he thinks that the Jefferson administration and Jefferson have acted against the law, that they were duty-bound to give them the commissions once they were duly uh, appointed. And so um, it's actually the harshest criticism of a presidential administration in a Supreme Court opinion up until that point. And question number three, and here's the part where everyone looks to the thinking uh, of, of the Chief Justice. Point three, if the law provided a remedy, was the proper remedy this mandamus or direct order from the Supreme Court? And it was on this point number three, John Marshall decided what, and this case became historic. So remember, we're taking Marshall's ordering of the issues. You know, from a proper point of view, here's the first issue in the case. Can John Marshall sit? The answer is no. He should have recused himself. He's a witness with first-hand knowledge of adjudicative fact. The second issue in the case is, does a court have jurisdiction? Does have the power to even hear the case because if it doesn't have jurisdiction, it's a bunch of people in black or other colored robes telling other folks what to do without authority. So from a modern point of view, John Marshall, you know, inverted everything. Why? In order to score a bunch of political points against Jefferson in some ways. At the end of the day, he's going to pull back. And at the end of the day, he's going to say, ah, even though what Jefferson and Madison has done is totally illegal in all these ways, the end of the day, he says, "Uh, actually, it turns out we don't have jurisdiction. And we don't have jurisdiction because this congressional statute that could be read as giving us jurisdiction is actually unconstitutional. And our job is to give effect to the Constitution, even if that's at the expense of a congressional statute. Now, from a modern point of view, if that's true, he should have probably decided that at the very beginning as either the first or the second question. Even before that, he probably should have said, am I entitled to hear the case? But in, uh, you recusal. But in saying point number three, he went on to declare what the court's authority was. And I have a paragraph to read because this becomes the heart of it. Uh, he wrote and read, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must, of necessity, expound and interpret that rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the courts must decide on the operation of each. 
a law repugnant to the Constitution is void and that courts, as well as other departments, are bound by that instrument. So there we have it. And and note two things. He says courts, not the Supreme Court. There's not actually a word in the opinion that really is about the unique powers of the Supreme Court as opposed to all the other judges in the system. And note also that he says as well as other departments. We today have tended to read Marbury as if he's saying, making a unique claim about how only courts are only the Supreme Court in context. I do think Marbury is actually better read as saying courts, along with other folks, are bound by the Constitution. And just as, you know, a Congress can't tell us um, how we have to rule, it, there are certain domains in which other branches of government might be able to make independent constitutional determinations, like a, a Jackson vetoing the bank bill or Jefferson pardoning the Sedition Act convicts. Well, I, I do think he is saying very clearly that at, at all of the departments do have a responsibility to evaluate the constitutionality. But at the end of the day, the final word, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. That's the heart of, of Marbury. And that's why it has been a beacon in our own history and the Supreme Court at times of great stress, like the Nixon tapes case or enforcing Brown versus Board of Education, has invoked that in Marbury. That's why it's been an example around the world. It states it very clearly. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department. And as we said, uh, the, uh, the chief justice wanted this to be unanimous. And of the four other justices sitting in, or uh, the four justices altogether sitting in, John Marshall, Samuel Chase, William Patterson and Bushrod Washington, they all joined in the opinion which was read. You have to tell the story of how it was read. That's really, I mean, it's hard to imagine. It was in the boarding house. Yes, yeah? yes. They, they were staying at uh, Stell's boarding house, which was uh, across the street from the Capitol. It's where uh, the Library of Congress uh, currently is. And um, they were staying there. Now, two justices were not in Washington because they were sick. And so there were only four justices there. It takes four justices uh, for a quorum, uh, Justice Samuel Chase, who was known as Old Bacon Face, had come down with a very painful case of the gout. And he could not hobble across the way to the Capitol. And so the Supreme Court tried to convene, but they only had three justices, and so they didn't have a quorum. And so then at a certain point, Marshall had a realization if Old Bacon Face can't come to the court, the court's going to come to him. And so they hold the Supreme Court in the parlor of Stell's Hotel. And this is, there's a lot going on at Stell's Hotel at the time. I mean, there are dancing assemblies, there's a traveling dentist who's staying there, who set up shop there. But in the, in the parlor of Stell's is where Marshall reads this most famous of Supreme Court opinions. It's not only famous, it's also the longest. 9,400 words, you said it. He read the entire thing to the assemblage, which took him probably how long? Did you ever time it out? Um, (laughs) No, I'm not sure, but I think it was at least a couple hours. But one thing that's very important, and there was this sense of high drama as he's reading it, because as you were going through the three questions, it looks like He's going to really issue a sweeping rebuke to the Jefferson administration and order them to deliver the commissions. And there would be a square confrontation between Marshall and the Supreme Court and Jefferson. And it was very possible that Jefferson would just defy them and the Supreme Court was very weak. And so he's going through the questions. Yes, Marbury has a right to the commission. Yes, he has a right to a remedy. And then he gets to that last point and says... 
but the statute doesn't give us jurisdiction. Therefore, we can't rule in Marbury's favor. So, well, the statute does, but it's unconstitutional. Yes, exactly. In, in its exactly. And we are striking us. down the statute because it's unconstitutional. So. And so, therefore, we can't give him this order. And so, the result is that technically, Jefferson and Madison win and Marbury loses, but there's an awful lot in the opinion that. Um, is all about how Marbury was right and they were wrong. So each side wins some, loses some. And that actually was a very important aspect of Marbury also, because a lot of people at the time thought that the Supreme Court was just going to be a very predictable political actor. These were all Federalist appointees. People expected they were just going to do the expected Federalist action. And instead, um, with this kind of mixed decision, in addition to being the first decision that strikes down a statute as unconstitutional, they actually seem to be acting as a court, rising above politics and weaving in a range of legal issues. Or, or at the very least, pulling back at the last moment. Remember, as Cliff said, Marber, Mar, Madison refuses to show up in court. Jefferson is not dignifying the jurisdictional pretenses of the court, signaling that they might not accept um, uh, the, a court order. They might not carry it out. And that's maybe the best case scenario. Here's intermediate case scenario. At the same time, there are impeachment proceedings um, in the pipeline against a lower court judge and actually soon thereafter a Supreme Court justice, none other than old bacon face. So um, best case scenario might be you issue this piece of paper and, and Jefferson laughs in your face and what are you going to do? Best case. Middle case, you issue this piece of paper and not only do they try to impeach a lower court judge named Pickering and a justice named Chase, they're going to go after you. Worst case scenario... You know, and we know it doesn't come to this, but they don't know how history is going to happen. You know, there was a French Revolution that had just happened, and, and heads had rolled, and, and Jefferson kind of said very airily, well, you know, you can't you know, make an omelet without breaking some eggs. The tree of, of liberty has to be watered with the blood of, of tyrants. We know that Jefferson isn't quite that cuckoo, but, but John Marshall can't be 100% sure that it's not going to end very, very badly indeed. So there's some prudence here as well. He, he doesn't push it too hard, even though it is a political scolding of, of, of epic proportions. Portions. Miguel is watching us in Weathersfield, Connecticut. Hi, Miguel, your question. Hello? Yes, you're on. Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, Miguel, we can. Your question. Yes, I'm calling from Corpus Christi. Okay. Go ahead, sir. Your question. Yes, good evening. Thank you, for C-SPAN, for doing this. Um, I think Jefferson and the others were quite shocked when they realized the implications of the opinion, because it's my understanding that state legislatures could override uh, their Supreme Court um, decisions. And I think Jefferson and many thought that would happen, but I think what was suggested here was not the case. Um, my question to the panel is, one of the books that um, I remember reading that I found just wonderful was Albert Beveridge's John Marshall biography, and which uh, reads like a, a French novel by Dumas or Balzac. And... Um, I just wanted to know what their opinion was regarding that book. 
which, again, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you, Miguel. Our our time is short, so I'll I'll find out what our guests think of that biography. Yeah, no, it's a terrific biography. There are a number of great biographies of Marshall. I mean, Marshall is a fascinating character. Um, He would have been tremendous company, and he enjoyed people, it seems like, just about everybody except Thomas Jefferson, who he really had that enmity with, and he was was brilliant. There's another uh, biography by Gene Smith, which is terrific. And um, he's just a very, very interesting character. But that's that's one of the ones that really bring him to life. Akil, a quick question for you from uh, on Twitter from Allegheny Tableau. The more we hear about this case, the more it seems it's solely a creation of Marshall's will. Is this American? Is that? No, I think that I, I, you know, I'm critical of some aspects of it. But judicial review is not made up at all. It's very well established, in fact. Um, in states, and, and in fact, con- contrary to what Miguel said, state legislatures before Marbury did not generally have the ability to overturn state court rulings that state laws had violated state constitutions. So Cliff Early said Marbury is the first thing at the national level of the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court itself, Justices Riding Circuit, had even inv- um, right. invalidated congressional statutes so, so, uh, and Federal 78. So um, Marshall is not making up judicial review at all. He's pulling a fast one in, in, in certain ways because if he doesn't, you know, um, his branch is going to vanish into nothing. The Federalists are never going to be heard from again. He's trying to rally the troops even as he's retreating. And one thing that you've heard us talk about is although Marshall, uh, Marbury is, is seen very much as judicial review, courts as against Congress, much of the drama here and in later Supreme Court opinions, uh, some of the most important is going to be courts against the president. We have 15 minutes to talk about the importance of this case. L- l- let me just say one thing while we were talking about uh, John Marshall, because I do want to mention, because Akil's mentioned the recusal point a couple times. And I do think, just for everybody to understand, um, in recusal is when a judge says, I can't sit on this case because I have a personal interest in it. And the standards for recusal were very different at the time. In today's world, there's no question to anybody that somebody shouldn't sit if they had that personal involvement. The standards for recusal at that time, it was definitely if you had a financial interest. And beyond that, it was very sort of vague and murky. And one of the things that's very telling about that is that in the whole uh, sequence of Marbury and its aftermath, including Jefferson's very bitter criticism of it the rest of his life, he never raised that as a point. So to the, uh, and everybody knew it, and, 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 and nobody, and, and there were people who wrote uh, articles in newspapers attacking Marbury and attacking Marshall on many grounds, nobody raised that. So to the contemporary ears and eyes at the time, it didn't occur to people that he should have recused. So on to the impact of this case, both at the time and today. I'm going to start with today because uh, judicial review is still being debated in this country. We have two points of view to show you. First, from the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, talking about the importance of, of Marbury versus Madison. Let's listen. Marbury and Madison is is probably the most famous case this court ever decided. All people who serve government take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. But this court has the last word on what that Constitution means. That is not the typical pattern in parliamentary systems where the legislature will have the last word on what the fundamental instrument of government means. 
the idea of judicial review for constitutionality, I think, is implicit in the constitutional document. But John Marshall made it explicit in the great case of Marbury against Madison. And we also traveled to Capitol Hill to talk to the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, a Republican, Bob Goodlatte of Virginia. Here's some of what he had to say. Well, I think the court has... uh, uh, in, in, I think, mistakenly relying on Marbury for something that goes beyond what the actual decision made, uh, gone too far uh, in a number of decisions with regard to uh, uh, getting involved in constitutional decisions or other decisions that are either not to be found in the Constitution and yet they found something there, uh, or uh, not finding something that I think most people uh, today, looking back, would have found that it should have been there. That's Con- uh, Congressman Bob Goodlack. I'd like to show you a number of decisions over the years that have cited Marbury as precedent and as uh, they, they made the decision. In fact, we found that Marbury was cited by, cited, excuse me, by the court over 200 times. But there are a number of key cases, um, some of them very recent, in which Marbury versus Madison uh, was cited, and they include Baker versus Carr in 1962, uh, saying that the Supreme Court can hear reapportionment cases. That's going to be one of our featured in this series. Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, recognizing the right to privacy and became fundamental in the Roe v. Wade decision. Our guest mentioned or late earlier U- U.S. v. Nixon, which uh, said that executive privilege in the case of the Nixon tapes is not absolute. U.S. v. Windsor. Defense of Marriage Act in 2013 is unconstitutional. And most recently, last year, King v. Burwall, which is the health care law review. So Marbury versus Madison has long tentacles uh, in, in uh, the court. A- Amy Mulligan asks, should we as Americans be concerned about judicial review becoming judicial activism? Well, the very important point is that judicial review is an essential cornerstone of our system. Um, Former Chief Justice Rehnquist said that it was the greatest gift Americans ever gave to the science of government, and it is a very, very important principle. But that doesn't mean we're all going to agree on how that power of review is exercised. And there are going to be, and there should be, healthy disagreements uh, about that. And uh, frequently, um, if somebody doesn't like the outcome of a decision of the Supreme Court, uh, that in, invalidates an action as unconstitutional, they view that as judicial activism um, from which, whichever perspective. But um, So there should be a, a, a very, very vigorous discussion about how the Supreme Court exercises that jurisdiction. But the fact that it has that uh, authority to provide the last word on constitutional issues is, I think, a very important protector of our liberty. Keel Barr. Um, so since you mentioned King versus Burwell, I want to give a shout out to Chief Justice Roberts, who, who began um, our, our conversation. Um, uh, there have been four times in American history, basically, when a new president representing a sort of a rising political force has confronted a court that represents the old political force, ghosts of presidents past. And the first is Jefferson confronting Marshall. And there's this confrontation. And Marshall, to his credit, he pokes Jefferson a little bit. But at the last minute, he actually shows some prudence and, and doesn't try to destroy um, uh, uh, t- in a pick, up, pick a huge fight. 
This is going to happen again when we get to the Dred Scott case. Um, uh, uh, Roger Tawney, representing the, the Democrat Party, the Jeff- what, the, what becomes the Jeffersonians, he's opposed to Abraham Lincoln, the anti-slavery person. And again, this dramatic um, uh, inauguration with the ghosts of the old regime meeting the, the new president, and there's going to be a confrontation there. And, um, and then a third time, FDR is going to confront all these judges from Republican administrations past, and there's going to be a, a, a crisis and the fourth time is John Roberts representing basically a lot of Republican presidents um, uh, who dominate the, the who, whose appointees dominate the court. And he could have picked a fight with Barack Obama. And twice in Sebelius and in King versus Burwell, he declines to invalidate the big um, uh, I, uh, uh, platform of of Obama, what he ran on Obamacare. And in so doing, he like John Marshall, took the court out of politics a little bit. It was not partisan. He joined actually with folks on the other side. And I like to think it's maybe because he studied Marbury versus Madison way back when. He went to the same law school, I think, you did. And, and it's possible he, he uh, um, uh, borrowed a page from the great Chief Justice. And, you know, on this point about judicial review and judicial activism, um, there was a companion case to Marbury versus Madison that is uh, o- almost never heard of or talked about called Stewart versus Laird. And in that case, there was a constitutional challenge to the statute that the Jeffersonians had passed, repealing the Judiciary Act, making the justices ride circuit again. And again, a lot of people expected these Federalist justices to strike that down as unconstitutional. They thought that's where the court's assertion of its power to invalidate statutes on constitutional grounds was going to come. And the, and the Supreme Court very quietly, in a brief opinion, upheld the constitutionality of that statute. And that was about two weeks after Marbury versus Madison. And what that showed was having established that it had the power of judicial review, the Supreme Court was going to exercise it very judiciously and not for predictable political purposes. So today, if you go to the National Archives, millions of people do every year, they have the, the area where the great documents of our government are on display. They've got the Magna Carta, they've got the Declaration of Independence, they've got the Constitution, and they also have documents from Marbury versus Madison. Does it belong there? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. It comes right after the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, and the explanatory statement there says it is because it is a cornerstone of our constitutional system, uh, and I think it absolutely is. Well, what, what also really belongs there, if we really want to understand modern-day judicial review, we care more about, many of us, rights of individuals rather than original versus appellate jurisdiction. And what we call the Bill of Rights, all the big cases about liberty, many of which are going to be in your series, a lot of them actually aren't strictly the Bill of Rights because they're not about the federal government, they're about states misbehaving. And that's because of the 14th Amendment and the Reconstruction. And so I'd want us to remember Mr. Lincoln alongside all of that because his generation gives us a new birth of freedom, a second founding that's really going to launch a very vigorous project of judicial enforcement of rights against all levels of government. That's what Marbury has become today, even though it wasn't actually that robust at the beginning, but it's become really important because of the Reconstruction, because of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And in fact, four of the cases we selected of the 12 are 14th Amendment-related cases 
And we've heard, for example, Senator Leahy call this the second founding of America when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed. Well, we've got about seven minutes left, and I have so much more I want to do, but I'm going to have to do it pretty quickly here. Let me take a call from Kat in Churchview, Virginia. You're on the air. Hi. Um, my question is, if Adam and Jefferson were friends, then how did Adam justify his actions when he kind of went against Jefferson and his presidency in the whole, like, debate thing? Okay, thanks. We spent some time on that in the beginning. How did he justify uh, his, his actions? Well, they, they had been friends, and then they became um, fairly bitter political uh, enemies. And uh, Adams, from his perspective, when he had been defeated and he saw Jefferson and the Jeffersonians uh, coming in, he was worried about the future of the country. And as he was putting all these federalists into government and uh, trying to ensure that they were there in the courts from his perspective, he was safeguarding the last bastion because uh, he, he was very fearful about what was going to happen to the country. But as we talked about before, fortunately, they reconciled before the end of their lives. And, and one thing really to, to give him his due, he leaves. He does not try to hold over and, and, and defy the will of the electorate. And that's an historic first. You know, since you were mentioning all these historic right. firsts, Marbury is, is important. It's a first of sorts. One political party losing fair and square to another at a national level and actually yielding power to its political rival, that's a pretty new and, you know, that, that, that gives the world um, an amazing lesson, it seems to me, and, well, and, and give Adams his, his due in that regard. And remember, he's worried the French Revolution, he doesn't, you know, is it going to spiral out of control? So some of this is, is maybe even self-protection on his part. Mistaken, but, you know, just to, to, so to give him his due. But John Adams considered his appointment of John Marshall to the Supreme Court one of the crowning achievements of his presidency. We'll show you next a letter that Adams wrote to John Marshall in the waning days of his life. In 1801, following uh, four years of serving as President of the United States, John Adams would leave Washington, D.C., and once again return home uh, to his home at Peacefield, where we are today. He would spend the next 26 years of his life at Peacefield with his beloved wife, Abigail, and their children and grandchildren. This was a very lively house. It's where they spent most of their time. In fact, John Adams left this house uh, very few times. During John Adams' presidency, Abigail would spend much of her time back here at Peacefield. During that time, she would make an addition to the house. We call it the 1800 wing, and it includes a study on the second floor where John Adams could entertain his mind. It was from this desk that John Adams would correspond with Thomas Jefferson, and they shared over 300 letters in their lifetime. In one of the earliest letters, Adams would write to Jefferson, you and I ought not die before we have had a chance to explain ourselves to one another. Many of these letters were the lifeline for John Adams to the outside world. He loved to receive letters, he loved to write them, and sometimes he was even surprised with a gift, including from his old friend, John Marshall, who he appointed as Chief Justice of the United States. John Marshall presented John Adams with a copy of his book that he had just written on the life of George Washington. John Adams is at his desk and he's writing to John Marshall uh, that he has received this, this gift. He writes, Dear Sir, the extreme imbecility of old age must be my apology for neglecting to write, and thank you for your valuable book. It has not been for want of esteem or respect or admiration that I have not written frequently to you. 
There is no part of my life that I look back upon with more pleasure than the short time I spent with you. And it is the pride of my life that I have given to this nation a Chief Justice equal to Coke or Hale, Holt or Mansfield. I am unalterably your friend and well-wisher, though on the point of departure, John Adams. So John, uh, John, the Chief Justice John Marshall served on the court for 34 years. He's often referred to, in fact, the sitting Chief Justice called him the great Chief Justice. Uh, what was his next several years like? I mean, did he decide many other cases? One book I read made the point that having established this principle, he became more powerful than the next three presidents of the United States. Would you go that far? No, I, I don't think, and I don't think that's the right way to look at it. Uh, the, John Marshall's legacy is that he created the Supreme Court as a co-equal branch of government. And in, in Marbury, he established the principle of judicial review and invalidating a federal statute. There's a whole series of other opinions where he establishes Supreme Court's authority to review state Supreme Court uh, decisions, where he uh, defines the contours of national power, including congressional power. Uh, but through his the, the, uh, the, the scope of his opinions, his brilliance, and also his personality, he took what was this very lowly, disdained court and really turned it into the Supreme Court of the United States. What should we remember him for? Well, here's one thing in addition to what Cliff said. Um, I can't remember who it was who basically said 90% of life is just showing up. John Marshall shows up. He, he just stays for a very long time, 34 years. That um, John, His predecessor, John Jay, left. The next guy, Oliver Ellsworth, left. So um, imagine an alternative universe, because when you look at the Constitution, there's not a term limit for the presidency until the 20th century, until after FDR. So imagine a world in which presidents are perpetually re-elected presidents for life. Well, we don't have that because George Washington steps down after two terms and Adams leaves office peacefully and then Jefferson steps down and Madison and Monroe and a, and a tradition um, begins. But, 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 John, uh, but Washington established that. And his great biographer, of course, was none other than, than John Marshall. And so Washington establishes that we won't have a presidency for life. John, Ad, uh, John Marshall really puts kind of... Um, a different spin on life tenure, good behavior. You know, he doesn't cut and run. He just stays and stays and stays and works with new appointees, basically um, Jeffersonian appointees, and, and tries to create a non-political court that's above party. And, and, and he just, he stays. And so and a lot of life is just showing up. We know what happened to James Madison's political career. What about William Marbury, who gave his name to this very famous Whatever happened case? to William Marbury? I always get asked that question <laughs> yeah. by my students. Well, you know, it, Marbury continued to be very active in business affairs uh, in, in Washington, D.C. over the course of the next 30 years or so. He had his hand in lots of different business ventures, a bank, a place that imported suits from England. But, you know, the, the house that Marbury lived in during this time still stands. It's, it's in Georgetown. It's actually the embassy of Ukraine today. And, uh, and uh, you can see it there. It was basically Marbury's command post during this entire period. Well, special thanks to our two terrific guests for our first in our Landmark Cases series, Akil Ridamar and Cliff Sloan. 
And 11 more to follow, gentlemen, with lots more discussion about the Supreme Court. Thank you for starting it off with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And, Thank you. and thanks to our viewers. Your questions always make this so interesting. We hope you'll be with us throughout the series. C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series continues next Monday. Dred Scott was enslaved by U.S. Army surgeon Dr. John Emerson. After Dr. Emerson died, Mr. Scott tried unsuccessfully to win freedom for himself and his family because he argued they had lived in Illinois and the Wisconsin Territory for four years where slavery was illegal. We'll look back at the Scott v. Sanford case, which was decided by the Supreme Court in 1857. That's live next Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern on C-SPAN and C-SPAN 3. You can learn more about our Landmark Cases series, which explores the human stories and constitutional dramas behind some of the Supreme Court's most significant decisions. Go to cspan.org slash landmarkcases. And from the website, you can find C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book, which features background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press. Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping. That's at cspan.org slash landmarkcases.